Hi, readers. Welcome to Books Connect Us from Penguin Random House. This is a podcast about staying connected with each other and the stories and authors who inspire us. Today's guest is Ruth Reichel, the bestselling author of My Kitchen Year, Delicious, and her latest memoir, Save Me the Plums, which chronicles her groundbreaking tenure as editor-in-chief of Gourmet. Complete with recipes, Save Me the Plums is a personal journey of a woman coming to terms with being in charge and making her mark, following a passion and holding on to her dreams, even when she ends up in a place she never expected to be. Now let's join Random House's Taylor Knoll in conversation with author Ruth Reichel. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Yes. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for asking. Um, it is such a pleasure to have you here today. I'm such a huge fan personally. Um, thank you. Yeah, of course. For those of you who don't know, um, Ruth is a celebrated food writer, restaurant critic, um, and most recently, the best-selling author of Save Me the Plums, which was just released in paperback. Congratulations. Yay. Oh, it was so good. Do you want to start by telling us a little bit about your most recent book? Yes, well, um, I was the last editor of Gourmet Magazine, and I really thought, it wasn't like I thought, oh my God, the world needs another memoir from me. But I felt like I had the enormous good fortune to be, over, be able to be part of the golden age of magazine publishing, which is never coming again. And, yeah. um, you know, I was the restaurant critic of the New York Times and Condé Nast came to me and said, we want you to be the editor of Gourmet. And I said, you're crazy. I don't know how to be an editor of a magazine. I'm a restaurant critic. And they said, no, 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 we really, we really want you to do it. And so it's the story of, you know, someone who is totally out of her depth, goes into this, you know, legendary publication, um, legendary publishing house, which is famous for its crazy excesses. So it's a little bit, you know, Ruthie in Wonderland, you know, I go in and you know, I've, I've been riding the subway my whole life. I've never made, you know, very much money. And suddenly I'm in this world of limousines and, you know, people showing up to do your hair and makeup every morning and a clothing allowance. <laughs> And I'm also surrounded by um, the smartest food people in the world on this staff. And I go in and I say, you know, we can do anything we want. They just want it to be a fabulous magazine. And, you know, the staff picked it up and said, this is what we should do. And it was a magical 10 years. And, you know, I thought, you know, that, that's never coming again. Publishing like that is never happening again. And someone should write about that moment. Um, so Ruth, what was it like to go back and kind of relive some of those memories as you're writing this book? Um, it was bittersweet because the ending of Gourmet, as I'm sure everyone knows, was like very abrupt and very shocking. The magazine was almost 70 years old and um, I had no idea that Condé Nast was even considering closing it. I mean, even though we were in a recession and things were terrible, they were terrible for magazines everywhere, not just in Bourg Gourmet. Um, and it was very bittersweet to uh, 
you know, think about um, what could I have done differently that might have saved the magazine. And um, it really made me realize how much I loved the process of magazine making and how much I loved the team of people I was working with. I mean, nothing more fun than that kind of collaboration where you go in every day what's going to happen today? Somebody's going to have a great idea I hadn't thought of and, you know, we're going to be able to do it. And I really, um, I really missed it. Um, and it took me a while to figure out exactly what the story I wanted to tell was. Mm -hmm. And were you, were you journaling during that time? I mean, your descriptions have so much detail in them that I feel like I was there for them. How did you, how did you remember all of those? Okay. Details? This is my fifth memoir. So. <laughs> And I went into that job knowing that I wanted to write about it. So I did a lot of things. I mean, I, I kept notes, but I also, every day before I left the office, I would print out five or six emails that had come in that day, just so I would have a very visceral account of what was going on, you know, what people had said to me, how they'd responded to things. So, um, and, you know, oddly, you know, you hear about when things end, a big corporation comes in and says, leave, and somebody escorts you out the door. That's not what happened at Condé Nast. I, mean, I packed up my entire office. I mean, everything came home with me. So I had the best notes of any of the books I've ever written. Every letter anyone had sent me, I had it all. What great resources to have for that. It um, really was. And so how soon after Gourmet Closing did you start working on this book? Um, it was a while because I had always said, um, if I didn't have a day job, I wanted to write fiction. And suddenly, for the first time in my life, I mean, I've been working since I was 16. Yeah. The first time in my life, I didn't have a day job. And um, I decided to write a novel. So I wrote Delicious, the novel. And then while I was writing that, um, I wrote my kitchen year, 136 recipes that saved my life about how after Gourmet closed, I went into the kitchen and just got myself regrounded uh, by cooking. And then I wrote, uh, I mean the plums. So it was a while, it, it was, there was a good, five years before I started working on it. And I think you need that when you're writing memoir, you need a little distance from the place that you're writing about. I mean, you really need to sort out your feelings and figure out, you know, what is the story that I want to be telling here? Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense to have had that space for reflection before you really dig into it. And it was also, I mean, I, I had gotten over whatever bitter feelings I had and whatever, you know, the horrible feelings of failure. You know, here was this mag magazine that existed for 70 years and closed on my watch. And, you know, 65 people I really cared about lost their jobs. So there was a lot of, I got rid of all of that. And it was, oh, you know, I was really lucky to have had those 10 years. And all of us who worked there were really lucky. And so um, I'm glad I gave it the time because it ends up being a celebration, not, a, not an elegy. Yeah, there's so much joy in the book. Um, it really feels kind of like this ode to your time there, which is incredible to read. It was. I mean, it was the greatest job anyone could ever have. And Amazing.
you know, how could I not celebrate that? Definitely. So do you want to talk, since this is the writer's routine, I want to talk a little bit about um, your craft and kind of what is your writing process? Do you have any, any routines when you write? Okay, so most of my books have been written when I had really full-time jobs. And so I, I've written, except for, you know, since Gourmet Closed, I've written all of my books I get by getting up at five o'clock in the morning before my family is up and writing from five to seven when it's time to wake the guys up and make breakfast. Um, it's very odd to have all day because I had gotten into this routine of getting up, not having coffee, not anything, kind of stumbling in, towards my computer and writing in a semi-sleep state, you know, that, that first draft just sort of came like that. It took me a long time to figure out how to write when I didn't have to get up at five in the morning. <laughs> um, and we are actually not in my, the place where I write right now because what I ended up doing was building myself a little cabin. Ooh. And it's, it's a cabin in the woods and it doesn't have Wi-Fi. And um, I go out there and I'm surrounded by you know, deer come and peek in the window and I'm looking down at a lake and it's, I filled it with, you know, pictures of people I love and art that I love and it's, it's all bookcases and window and it's a really tranquil place and it, sort of gets me back into that space of just really being in my head. Mm -hmm. And now that, um, you know, I didn't, I don't have to go to work. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I pretty much spend my day out there. You know, I, I, I get up, I make breakfast, I go out to work, I come in, I make lunch, I go back to work. Um, and um, it's, it's my favorite place to be. Amazing. That sounds so peaceful. Like you really have that time to kind of concentrate on what you're doing without any distractions. It, it is really peaceful. Um, unfortunately, now in this moment, I'm working on a documentary right now. And since I don't, I don't have Wi-Fi out there, I can't do it. So I'm, these days I'm barely ever out there because I'm, <laughs> like, I'm Zooming with farmers and fishermen and chefs. Uh, well, that sounds fascinating. I'm excited to watch that documentary. Well, it's going to be a while because what <laughs> I wanted to do was, um, you know, when I wrote, part of the reason for writing Save Me the Plums was I, when I took over the magazine, I said, we're at a pivot point and it's time for Epicurean Magazine to tackle some of what's going on in the, in the food landscape. And I feel we're in another pivot point right now. Definitely. Thing is, I mean, we are never going back in the food world to what we had when we went into this COVID crisis. And really great things could happen. We could actually start fixing our broken food system or terrible things could happen. And 35 years of work and sustainability could go out the door. Yeah. And so I wanted to keep a day by day record. I, I mean, however, wherever we end up, I want a real record of how we got to wherever we're going. So. Yeah. It's been a great project. I've yeah. So much. Are you finding time um, to cook while you're busy at home? Oh, yes. I mean, cooking is, it has always been the thing 
that grounds me. And more than ever now, when we're all in isolation, you know, those mealtimes really matter. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any fun, um, especially good dishes that you've been making lately? Um, let me see. What did I make last night? I, I, I made yellowtail collars last night, which, um, you know, I mean, I'm missing, I'm finding myself cooking a lot of things I didn't used to. I mean, I'm cooking a lot of Asian food because I miss Chinese restaurants and I'm, I miss Japanese restaurants. So I found, you know, you can buy yellowtail collars online. They come frozen and it's like, I can do this. And um, so I, I've been experimenting a lot. Mm -hmm. Are there any other things that you're turning to for comfort right now? Um, no, I'm pretty much spending, you know, I'm dividing my time between, you know, working on this documentary, cooking, and then um, getting in my couple hours of work. I'm working on a novel again, so. Um, How are you staying inspired right now? Oh, uh, well, I am staying inspired because I am talking to the most forward-thinking people in the food world. I mean, I'm talking to people literally from all over the world and how people respond to this is so inspiring. I mean, I have met online, uh, you know, so many people, uh, you know, young people who are doing charitable efforts, um, you know, fishermen who are figuring out how to survive this. You know, I mean, for fishermen, this is particularly hard because 85% um, of all the fish eaten in America is eaten in restaurants. So, um, and, um, you know, farmers who are pivoting and chefs who are having these brilliant thoughts about what a restaurant looks like in the future. So, I mean, every day I talk to people who are inspiring me. I mean, yesterday I was talking to an 85 year old farmer in Ohio who is really working hard on how to get more nutrition into the vegetables he grows. Mm -hmm. Are there things that we can be doing to help the restaurant community and the, the larger food industry right now? Well, there are so many things. And, and the biggest thing is, you know, support your local farmers, fishermen. I mean, there are, um, in every community, there are farmers who have have always grown things specifically for restaurants and who are now pivoting to selling to home. And it's hard. I mean, it's a hard pivot. So seek them out, find them, support them. I saw another audience question here that was asking if there are other food writers or bloggers that, that you, that you also really love that you would recommend. Oh, so many. Um, I, I am currently reading Bren Smith's book, Eat Like a Fish. I recommend it to everyone. It's wonderful. Phyllis Grant's new book is incredible. Bill Buford has a book called Dirt coming out that is wonderful. Um, you know, I imagine everybody who's watching this has read Gabriel Hamilton's piece in the New York Times about losing prune, but what an amazing piece. Um, Saleh Ho is a writer I really admire. She's the restaurant critic of the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, there's a um, Tejal Rao in the, uh, in the New York Times is wonderful. Lagaya Michan is wonderful. There are so many, there's never been a better time for food writing. I mean, they, there are so many good people right now. What do you miss most about your time at Gourmet? 
Oh, I miss, I miss working with people. I mean, I just, I mean, we had such a great team and I miss that inspiration of going into the office and just um, talking to people and watching an idea grow and get better and more interesting. Um, I really miss that. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's about all of our time for today. Is there anything else that you want to share with us before I let you go? Um, no, but this was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. And now, here's an exclusive excerpt from the audiobook, courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. I was eight years old when I first found the magazine, sitting on the dusty wooden floor of a used bookstore. My father was a book designer who enjoyed the company of ancient volumes, and he often took me on book hunting expeditions around New York, leaving me with a pile of vintage magazines while he went off to prowl among the dark and crowded shelves. That day, I picked up a tattered old issue of Gourmet, enchanted by the cover drawing of a majestic swordfish leaping joyfully from the water. This looked nothing like the ladies' magazines my mother favored, with their recipes for turkey divan made with cans of mushroom soup or pot roast topped with ketchup. And I opened it to find the pages filled with tales of food in faraway places. A story called Night of Lobster caught my eye, and as I began to read, the walls faded, the shop around me vanishing until I was sprawled on the sands of a small island off the coast of Maine. The tide was coming in, water tickling my feet as it crept across the beach. It was deep night, the sky like velvet, spangled with stars. Much later, I understood how lucky I was to have stumbled on that story. The author, Robert P. Tristram Coffin, was the poet laureate of Maine and a Pulitzer Prize winner, with such an extraordinary gift for words that I could hear the hiss of a giant kettle and feel the bonfire burning as the flames leapt into the night. The fine, spicy fragrance of lobster was so real to me that I reached for one, imagined tossing it from hand to hand until the shell was cool enough to crack. The meat was tender, briny, rich. Somewhere off in the distance, a fish splashed, then swam silently away. I closed the magazine and the real world came into focus. I was a little girl leafing through the pages of a magazine printed long before I was born. But I kept turning the pages, enchanted by the writing, devouring tales of long-lost banquets in Tibet, life in Paris, and golden fruit growing on strange tropical trees. I had always been an avid reader, but this was different. This was not a made-up story. It was about real life. I loved the ads for exotic ingredients you could send away for. Oysters by the bushel, freshly picked watercress, alligator pears, avocados, and frog's legs from the frogland of America. Once I actually persuaded my parents to order a clam bake in a pot from Saltwater Farm in Damariscotta, Maine. Eight live lobsters and a half peck of clams came swathed in seaweed and packed in ice. It cost $14.95, and all you had to do was poke holes in the top of the container and set it on the stove. I couldn't get enough of those old issues, and now when Dad went off exploring bookstores, I had a quest of my own. The day I discovered a battered copy of the gourmet cookbook among the ancient issues, I begged Dad to buy it for me. It's only 50 cents, I pleaded. It came in handy the morning I opened the refrigerator in our small kitchen and found myself staring at a suckling pig. I jumped back, startled, 
and then did what any sensible person would do, reached for the cookbook. I was only 10, and I hoped it would have some advice on how to deal with the thing. Sure enough, there it was on page 391, roast suckling pig Parisienne. There was even a handy photograph demonstrating how to trust the tiny animal. I remember that moment, and not just because the recipe insisted on a lot of yucky stuff like putting a block of wood into the pig's mouth to brace it for the apple that will be inserted later, and boiling the heart for gravy. I remember it mostly because that was the day mom finally admitted she was glad I'd found a hobby. My mother's interest in food was strictly academic. Asked what had possessed her to purchase the pig, she replied, I'd never seen one before, as if that was an adequate answer. The same logic had compelled her to bring home a can of fried grasshoppers, a large sea urchin with dangerously sharp spines, and a flashy magenta cactus flower. She had little interest in eating these items, but if I was going to insist on reading what she called that ridiculous magazine, she thought it should be put to use. The fried grasshoppers were not a hit. I suspect the can had been sitting on a shelf for years, awaiting some gullible customer. And while the editors were eager to instruct me in the preparation of eels, bears, woodchucks, and snipe, they were strangely silent on the subject of sea urchins. When I finally managed to pry the creature open, I found the gooey black inside so appalling that nothing would have tempted me to taste it. As for the cactus flower, its great good looks camouflaged a total lack of flavor. But the suckling pig was a different story. I did everything the cookbook suggested and then hovered anxiously near the oven, hoping it hadn't led me astray. When the pig emerged all crackling skin and sweet soft meat, mom was happy. I've never tasted anything so delicious, she grudgingly admitted. That magazine might be useful after all. Dad took one bite and said, do you think you could figure out how to make Kosleripchen? There was a wistful note in his voice. It was my favorite food when I was a boy. What is it? I'd never heard of such a dish. Smoked pork chops. I imagine we could get them up in Yorkville. I'd never been to Yorkville, but I knew Dad had lived there when he first arrived from Berlin in 1926. He was 26. You can't imagine how different it was from the rest of the city, he said as we rode the bus to the Upper East Side. Every shop, every bakery, every restaurant was German. And in those first months, I found it comforting to be surrounded by all those familiar sights and sounds. Thank you for listening to Books Connect Us. For more great book recommendations and information about your favorite authors, feel free to follow Penguin Random House on social media or visit penguinrandomhouse.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps more listeners to find our show. This podcast is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I've been Aaron Leaf, and until next time, this has been Books Connect Us.